The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Social insurance. It sounds like a boring phrase that involves lots of policy analysis and gritty detail, and it does include all of that. But it's designed to deal with a particular problem we're going to see a lot more of in the years to come. It also raises issues about inequality, fairness, how we deal with it. And to talk about that, I firstly wanted to take you back to the place where I grew up and where someone else grew up, actually. It's a place called Murapara. It's a small town on the edge of the Kangaroo Forest, which was formed in the 60s and 70s, essentially as a service town for the forest. So a lot of people who were there had great jobs, getting paid reasonable money to grow the forest, to look after the forest and to look after the land around that forest. That was owned by the Crown and supported by the government. But in the late 1980s and early 1990s, those jobs went in a hurry. Parties of both political colours decided to get rid of the Forest Service and to get rid of a lot of those people who were earning good money looking after that forest. Eventually, it was sold off to uh, foreign parties. Interestingly, that forest is now at least partly back in the ownership of the New Zealand Superannuation Fund. That's another story for another day. And the New Zealand Forest Service has just been recreated as well in nearby Rotorua. But in Murapara, the end of those jobs was absolutely devastating. Now, you may have heard of this because the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, has talked about it a lot as an example of a thing that she doesn't want to happen again, where a big change, a deregulation, a, a big technology change, a change where a town's jobs go in one fell swoop, where a whole bunch of people are tossed aside and not paid much and really bear the cost of a massive reform. She doesn't want to have that happen again because she grew up in Murapara. Her dad was the cop there, and she saw through the late 80s and early 90s the real struggles that town had as those good jobs were lost and there was not much compensation. It was not a just transition. Murapara now is a fairly desperate place. Most of the shops are closed. A good number of the houses on the streets are burnt out. Many of the people who live in Murapara are on some benefit or another. It's a really tough place and it shocked me when I went there just after the end of the COVID lockdown uh, last year. It made me sad actually because it was a a town that, that I loved and had grown up in, in near. I grew up on a dairy farm in a place called Galatea, which is actually right across the Rangataiki River from Murapara. And so I used to go to that town quite regularly and a lot of my friends were there growing up in the mid to late 70s in Galatea. Uh, the people in Murapara felt a lot like me. They were just as poor, as rich as me and my family. And I used to meet up with a lot of them in part because I went to the Catholic church there. Murapara is now a completely different place 
It's a place that's really struggling. And the question is, how could you make that transition much more just? Make sure that those people who lost their jobs were given not just the dole, enough to pay for some food, but actually enough to live on and give them time to retrain and to do better. That's what we're talking about here with social insurance, creating a scheme which means that people get paid a lot more than the dole and are helped a lot more to change their career, get some extra skills and move on, and so that the shock to that particular community is not too great and traumatic. It's interesting, uh, when I went back to Murupara uh, last year, I visited the local school where the government is investing quite a lot of money, effectively um, putting money in at the bottom of the cliff after the shock and the social trauma of what had happened over the last 20 or 30 years. But across the river in Galatea, everything going swimmingly well, a much, much richer place now than Murupara, a essentially Pākehā neighbourhood, lots of dairy farmers, lots of irrigation, a school that looked rich. It had lots of sponsorship signs up outside. The kids were were happy and playing around, and it looked like a middle-class school uh, and, and, a, and a pretty good-looking school. And I remember it as a kid, going to it as a, as a good school. It didn't need to be rescued, if you like, by heavy investment by the state, and that's what's happening now in Murupara. The reason I bring this up is because the Prime Minister has rightly pointed out that she doesn't want the same thing to happen to Murapara that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years, and, and neither do I. In fact, we both went to the same school, although at different times, because I'm a lot older. Today we're going to talk about social insurance and how it could be introduced, the curly questions about what we need to be sure that we're going to do or not do. Find out who's going to pay for it. Is it going to be taxpayers in general or is it going to be workers? And will those workers essentially be putting money into the scheme and subsidising others who are on lower incomes and who are on less secure work? And we also have an interesting situation where employers, Business New Zealand in particular, is keen for the scheme. In fact, Business New Zealand and the CTU, the Combined Trade Unions, actually got together and came to the government and said, hey, we're quite keen to give this a crack. And the reason is that employers don't want to see a compulsory redundancy scheme put in place. Remember, New Zealand doesn't have one. In many other places overseas, there is much more generous redundancy protection for someone who loses their job. Also, both employers and unions can see that in the decades to come, there are going to be communities where that particular large employer or that particular type of work gets wiped out in very short time. And those people will have to retrain and reskill. Climate change is an issue, but even now, there are towns like, for example, Bluff and Invercargill, where TY Point could be closed at a relatively short notice. And Thousands of very well-paid jobs will suddenly have to go from maybe a couple of thousand dollars a week down to three or four hundred dollars a week. And that will be a real blow for people who've put their roots down in that community and want to stay there with their families. Climate change is an issue. We've seen it with TY Point where that power is going to be necessary to help New Zealand move to a renewable energy future. But also as we've seen the Whangarei this week with the refinery at Marsden Point, 
the announcement was made that finally it is going to move to being an import-only terminal. So that means there won't be crude oil coming across the docks and then refined into jet fuel and petrol and diesel. We'll just be importing tank loads of petrol and diesel and jet fuel from Singapore or somewhere else. So that means lots of those workers at their refinery will lose their very highly paid jobs. There are also other places, Kawaro, for example, not that far from Murapara, actually, where the large pulp and paper mill there owned by Norska Skug is considering shutting down and, and losing lots of jobs, in part because electricity prices have spiked. Again, climate change being one of the issues there, not enough rain down south into those big lakes. We're going to see these transitions over the next 20 or 30 years, and the challenge will be designing a social insurance scheme that is fair and that doesn't effectively um, embed the privilege and the wealth of those people who are in full-time jobs at the moment because they're going on to a Kuru Lounge-style version of the doll. And one of the big questions will be making sure that those people who are long-term unemployed and not able to be in a social insurance scheme see their well-being lifted and their opportunities to find a secure, fulfilling job as well. We'll find out more about this in a moment. Well, welcome to the parliamentary studios here to Kirk Hope, the CEO of Business New Zealand. Kirk, welcome in. Good to see you. Kia ora. Tell me, why does Business New Zealand, which is the peak group for employers, support the idea of social insurance or unemployment insurance? The genesis of this discussion actually with CTU was through our involvement with the Tripartite Future Work Forum, um, which, which we, we all co-chair, um, Richard and I co-chair with the, with the Minister of Finance. And it became apparent to us as we were thinking about um, you know, large-scale economic disruptions that you know, that countries might face. This was pre-COVID, by the way, um, that we weren't really prepared for the gap that people might face when they're out of work. If, if their industry, for example, um, faced significant economic disruption, and, and we were thinking a bit much more about in the, in the climate change frame. So, you know, the so-called just transitions were very much a part of the background to this thinking. And we were thinking about it in, in the context of how do you support people to develop some collateral skills that might enable them to be attractive to another industry. And so, you know, what's in it for business? Well, you know, we're facing down some pretty significant skill shortages. New Zealand competes globally for skills. We haven't done that well in terms of closing our mismatches, uh, our mismatch for skills. Um, this is a way to enable people when they're out of work to um, to help incentivise them to to train or to upskill to get back into work. Um, so that's really the, the sort of genesis of it. So what's wrong with the current unemployment benefit? It's it's pretty low level. It doesn't provide you with the resources that you really need to properly do the sorts of skilling that we're thinking about. Um, and again, we, we wanted to um, prevent the sort of um, challenges that people, families and communities faced through other periods of economic disruption uh, so that, you know, they, they can be supported through it. Schemes like this operate around the world. Uh, the one that we've looked at at Business New Zealand uh, and, and liked the look of was talked about in the Productivity Commission's uh, report on the future of work. Um, it's the Danish model. Um, it has some features in it which we we thought were pretty good, so 
quite a high starting percentage of the salary as a as a as a beginning, um, stepping down over time. The requirement that you have to be available for work that's you know uh, that's that's loosely related to the sets of skills that you have, and you have to be available for training to to enlarge those skills. So why not simply have a compulsory statutory redundancy scheme where the employer is forced to pay, let's say, three months wages, 80% of those wages when they're made uh, redundant? Because at the moment, we're one of the few countries without you know, compulsory statutory redundancy. Yeah, look, there's, there's two reasons for that. Um, a lot of countries are trying to move away from that model. It's an expensive model. Also, it doesn't do the type of things that we really need a scheme that we're talking about to do, which is enable and facilitate and provide for training. Uh, uh, so that's the that's one of the core purposes. This, the scheme, the underpinning of the scheme is really to ensure that people get back into work uh, and support and are supported to retrain to get back into work. Isn't that what MSD does? Why not just have a much higher level of the benefit and extend it for as long as you can, so that people can get the training and can be, can get back into the into the workforce? Yeah, look, I mean, that, well, that's an alternative model, and I mean, the government can feel free to investigate that. I mean, we we felt like. There is, a, there is an existing uh, example of what happens when people are out of work for a period of time in New Zealand, and that's the ACC scheme. So again, you know, if you, de- if you designed it in, the, in a similar way, you're not having to recreate the wheel. Probably, um, depending on the scope and scale of the scheme, you know, you'd imagine levies would be pretty low um, because there's a very small proportion of the population out of work at any given time. So who would um, pay for these levies? I know none of the details have been sorted out yet, so yeah. it's probably premature to try and put a percentage on it. But it seems that the way it's being framed is the employee would pay a little bit, the employer would pay a little bit, and the government would pay a little bit. Um, is that how you think it might work out? Yeah, I mean, roughly that that is the thinking, and I think that's, that spreads the cost evenly. Uh, the government play the role in getting a pool of money up and running, which which acts as, as the insurance scheme, if you like. And then very quickly, uh, there's there's enough pooling in terms of the fund to be able to support those people who become out of work. How do you avoid this danger of creating a two-tiered unemployment system where people who are already unemployed before the scheme comes in are locked in with a very low unemployment benefit and those people who are safely in work, uh, um, a full-time proper job, if you like, not a contract job, uh, they, when they get unemployed, they get this big juicy payout, whereas, you know, the long-term unemployed who have been unemployed before the beginning of the scheme, they're stuck there on these very low unemployment payments and recreating some of the pain, I suppose, of what we saw last year where the COVID income relief uh, payments was at a much higher level than boring old regular, you know, um, job seeker support. How do you avoid that two-tiered thing? Yeah, I think it, I don't. I don't think it's that difficult to do. Um, I think there's still, a, as you know, as we've said all along, there's still a lot of design work that needs to go on uh, to iron out some of those details. Um, you wouldn't want to face that risk, frankly. You don't want a t- two-tiered system, and I don't think you need to have one. Even though we're looking at uh, similar schemes in ACC and other schemes from around the world, I think the devil is always going to be in the detail and what will work in New Zealand. Now, one of the issues um, with ACC is that it's for accidents. Now, if you're sick, 
let's say, for example, I don't know, you get bullied at work and you have mental health issues, which means you have to give up your job or maybe you get fired uh, and you're not made redundant, you sort of fall between the cracks here. What about including uh, health and disability as, you know, one of the um, items in this, this scheme rather than just pure old redundancy? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it will come down to, in the end, to the scale, scope, cost, affordability. So the broader the scheme, the more types of things it tries to provide support for, the more expensive it will get. Um, so I think those things have to have to really be worked through. And the, the other question that you have to ask yourself is, are there other better existing tools that might support people in those situations. And uh, another issue that, that crops up, let's say I'm working after the age of 65, so I'm getting the pension and I'm getting my, my wage, and then I'm made redundant. Uh, would I get, for example, I know this is a particular detail, but it, it risks embedding the already wide inequality by, by meaning that those people who lose their jobs, they may be quite wealthy already, quite likely to get another job. They seem to get a great deal and those people who are stuck, unemployed, or maybe don't have a proper job, which is part of the social insurance scheme, don't get access to this, this for the want of a better word, gold-plated system. Yeah, I don't, I, people have kind of raised this. The purpose of the scheme is to enable people to get back into work. I guess if maybe one of the principles would be, um, and, and again, it's a uh, uh, still being worked through but if you pay into the scheme sh- you should be able to access the scheme so that's one of the things and one of the questions that arises in that um, discussion is okay what ha- what happens if you are in work you've just started do you get cover from day one or does it start down the track so again that's another issue that has to be worked through and it's a valid issue you know if 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 I'm you know 19 or 20 years old and and I'm last in if you like and I'm likely to be first out um, and I've only been working for three months am I going to be covered um, to help me get into work again um, again really good issue um, that will need to be um, need to be sorted out. And uh, one of the concerns people in Europe have about these social insurance schemes is that it it means that for an employer to take someone on, you know, there can be quite a lot of uh, costs involved. And for a lot of businesses, they go, actually, you know what, it's better off to hire a contractor than an employee. And as we've seen in France, for example, uh, where you have basically old people in work and proper jobs and young people can't get those proper jobs because employers don't want to take on full-time employees anymore and they become contractors, part of the gig economy. How do you avoid that risk where someone essentially games the system and says, ah, I know I can get out of the social insurance scheme by being a contractor or employing contractors? Well, I mean, if I go back to that, yeah, that sort of underlying principle that I outlined that if you pay in, you, you're, you're able to access the scheme, um, that, that's, that probably gets around um, quite a lot of those issues. So what are the sort of things, the added extras you would be reluctant to see thrown in the mix? Health and disability related matters, frankly, will increase the costs. Now, there's still a really live question that needs to be worked through by uh, the, the social partners, you know, the, um, the government, uh, us and the CTU, on, on the scope of that scheme because similarly you don't want to see people left out but if it means that the if the the scheme becomes unaffordable and unwieldy um, and therefore is is lost you, you don't want that either so just to 
look at the big picture here, uh, this was, I wouldn't say buried in the budget, it was announced in the budget, and the Labor Party had gone into the election with this idea in its manifesto, but it didn't get a lot of uh, publicity before the election, there was other stuff going on. And in this budget, obviously, the benefit increases were the thing that most people focused on. What broad impact could this have on our economy, our society over the, the long run? This could be one of those things in a budget which people look back on and go, wow, that was actually the big thing. Yeah, you'd hope that that, is, that it is fundamentally transformative and that it, it supports and assists people who become out of work. So, you know, our view is it's better to prepare for the likelihood of that economic disruption happening and enabling people to very quickly retrain and, and keep contributing to the economy um, versus uh, do nothing uh, and leave them to their own resources, which, you know, if they're trapped in a community, which is suddenly in a, you know, heavily invested in an industry which has a lot of stranded assets, they will, you know, they won't have a lot of resources at their disposal. And there are a couple of big company towns, if you like, where there is uncertainty about the future, Marsden Point and uh, TY Point, and of course the Kawaro, uh, Norska Skog, um, pulp and paper mill uh, right now, uh, live issues there. Can you tell us how this came about, this um, three-way discussion with the government? Because what we're talking about here is the representatives of capital and the representative of labour getting (laughs) together and coming to a government and saying, let's do this thing together. That's not the way it often works. Um, It almost seems too good to be true. What's, What's going on here? Well, actually, the reality is that, you know, what we all want is a, a productive um, su- sustainable uh, economy. If you listen to the rhetoric of this government, they often talk about the economic disruptions which occurred in the in the 80s. And, you know, we know that there were a lot of communities that struggled through that process. And so knowing that and having been through it before, why wouldn't we have a, a free and frank discussion with, with each other about that, uh, knowing that we're not always going to agree, but that it's an important uh, discussion to be having ultimately with a view that this is, you know, right for, this will be right for people and communities and help support them through difficult times. Kirk Hope, the CEO of Business New Zealand, with us here on When the Facts Change. Thank you very much, Kirk. Thank you. We'll be right back with Richard Wagstaff from the CTU. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world. 
as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome to Richard Wagstaff, who is the head of the CTU. General Secretary? Secretary President. President, there we go. <laughs> Kia ora. Why did the CTU and Business New Zealand come up with a sort of a joint approach to the government to have a closer look at the idea of social insurance? It's actually been something that the CTU supported for, for many, many years, um, but it hasn't really emerged as a, as a possibility. We are very clear that we need to deliberately um, create a good future of work. Um, we're not going to lie down and let it happen to us. Our, our objective is to be proactive and create our own future. And we're, we're aware that there are some fairly significant challenges when it comes to the future of work, climate change in particular, but also technology, demographics, globalisation, COVID. And many of those things, I was going to say, threaten or promise to bring about some significant change to work. Our view is that people need to be protected through a system of what we call a just transition when it comes to change. You have to look after people through change or else um, the consequences for them are dire. But I think politically they'll tend to resist change. I mean, I know that um, if we don't uh, negotiate decent packages for working people when they approach changes in, in industries or even in their individual circumstances, you know, there's enormous resistance to taking on change or even accepting the need for change. In New Zealand, we're used to the idea that if you're made redundant, if you're lucky, you might get some sort of payout from your employer, but then you're straight onto the dole. And for a lot of people, the dole is not enough to have a decent life. Some would say, well, that's the point. It's trying to make you, you know, get back into work. Uh, there used to be a finance minister who said that in 1991 as she cut the benefit. That'll make you more desperate to get back to work, she said, and in fact defended it after the budget as well. But how is it done overseas in a different way rather than just everyone's onto a very, very low dole and that's it? Yeah, I think the country that probably has the most recognition of this would be the Scandinavian countries with their um, different systems of flex security and so on. And um, certainly I understand the association with, with the dole and welfare and so on, but, but I think it's important to understand that we're coming at this from an active labour market point of view. What we're trying to do is keep people in work or in training and to move between jobs and to go from, you know, to maintain uh, not just the incomes but actually maintain and enable people to work in jobs that, that, that allow them to reach their potential. We know that the OECD has criticised New Zealand for what they call wage scarring. They're saying that w because we lack a social insurance scheme and our poor active labour market policies like retraining and so on, 
um, that, that New Zealanders not only have high job churn, but we actually have the consequences for individuals who lose their jobs are pretty bad in, uh, from a wage scarring point of view compared to the OECD average. So when you're saying wage scarring or um, work scarring, what do you mean? Well, we're referring to basically the drop in income people typically suffer when, they, when they're made redundant and go to another job. And, you know, it seems to, to me that um, when people um, fall from their job onto the welfare system, they are desperate and have to take the next thing going, uh, whether or not it suits them, whether or not um, that, you know, they would have preferred to have built up their skills and gone on to progress to something else. When they are one pay one paycheck away from from disaster, uh, being th- you know a rent problem or food or, or whatever, without a decent um, support in between jobs, people um, take a desperate and grab anything that's going, and, and and the consequences are there for everyone to see. Which means they don't have the time or the um, relaxedness, if you like, to say, well, I could t- take six months to retrain into a slightly different thing, or take my time to find the job that actually matches my skills. Is this what we're talking about here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and that's at an individual level. And of course, um, there are very dramatic impacts for whole communities when, when a whole, you know, when a sawmill closes or something like that. Then you have that on, on, a, on a very big scale, which collapses a whole community. So, you know, there are many, many um, angles at this. Um, our uh, view is that we can do a lot better. Um, to protect and support workers uh, between jobs so that they can maintain uh, uh, not only their incomes but they can actually maximise their opportunity to, to become the, you know, to get the jobs that they want to do, to upskill, to make themselves more productive and that's good for the whole economy at the end of the day. There is an argument, um, we don't really need a fancy social insurance scheme, why don't we just have a proper doll? that gives people a, um, enough money to give themselves time and a less um, prescriptive and I suppose you could call it uh, judgmental approach from MSD so that people do have the time to find the right job or, or go into the training. Just, you know, increase the, the dole and make training cheaper and easier to get rather than have a social insurance scheme. Yeah, I, I think that the um, what we think we can achieve in this is not just a dole, it's an active labour market system. You know, that's really important that even though we call it social insurance, we understand that it's not just about income replacement, it's, it's about much more than that. Secondly, um, you know, I just don't think it's, it's uh, you know, how are we going with that? We've had that for a very long time. The CTU has been very outspoken about implementing the WEAG reforms, about improving um, uh, welfare pay- payments and so on, uh, and we'll maintain and continue to do that. But um, we don't see it likely that it is going to do what this kind of system could ever do, and ne- nor does it do it anywhere that I know. So in a way, it's it's getting over a political problem rather than a than, than a welfare design problem? Well, as again, it's not designed to do what welfare does. Um, it's, it, this is about workers and employers trying to create an active labour market system that maximises people's work and maximises um, the quality of work. We haven't set out to design a welfare system here and we will maintain uh, a very strong advocacy for a proper welfare system, a better welfare system, um, that's not going to stop. I'm not aware of any correlation uh, in countries, you know, like the Scandinavians, that they somehow have bad welfare systems because they have an unemployment insurance system. There's no evidence to that. In fact, probably the reverse. The other thing, of course, is that if this works well, I mean, if, if we end up with this social unemployment insurance and it works well, 
I think there's an argument that it will take some pressure off the welfare system, which could actually make it better functioning, more able to cope and, and more generous in the long term. But um, I don't think anyone should see this as a signal that we give up on that. It's certainly not our commitment. And the other sort of boundary issue that some people um, talk about between ACC, which helps those people who have, have had accidents in and out of the workplace, and those people who have been made redundant, there's a group in the middle who are... Uh, maybe have gotten ill or had a sickness who aren't covered by ACC and if they have to leave their job, um, basically are on to the disability uh, benefit or the sickness benefit, which is, again, much lower. Do you think that uh, this insurance, social insurance scheme should also include, you know, health and disability issues for those people who've maybe had to stop work because, you know, they've developed an illness? Yes, I do. And... um in fact, um, what we're doing right now is exploring all these things, and certainly health and disability is in the mix. Um, obviously, redundancy is in the mix. The, the, the depth of it, the breadth of it, the length of it, the amount of it, all of those things need to be, need to be worked out, um, and they are being, you know, they need to be number crunched, and they need to be sort of worked out from a practical point of view and, and, and how it all interacts. And when all that's done, you know, we'll be able to talk uh, in, in much more detail and, and practically about what, what this could look like. But from our point of view, the more we can get into it, including health and disability, the better, and we intend to do that. Now, one of the other issues that people have talked about is uh, how does it interact with other parts of the welfare system, in particular pensions? Because we've got an awful lot of people working after the age of 65 now who'd be in a position where they'd get 80% of their income as a High Court judge if they were made redundant, as well as the pension. <laughs> as well as the pension. Uh, and, and one of the interesting issues that uh, Michael Cullen actually raised when he was designing KiwiSaver is that if we make it compulsory and we give some sort of uh, government subsidy for people to build up an individual savings account, the risk is that people will go, ah, we don't need this universal pension scheme anymore. How do you think a scheme like this should interact with the superannuation system and also avoid this problem where people go, hey, we've got social insurance, we don't need any sort of um, universal payment uh, well, we certainly don't want to see the end of the of the pension scheme. Remember, it doesn't go on forever. This is simply a payment that insures against uh, against income that you would have reasonably expected to have received. I don't have a, a simple answer for you, Bernard. Uh, in principle, we we wouldn't want to be seeing anything else uh, taken away from. We don't want individualised like KiwiSaver. We want a scheme more like ACC, where you know it's not an individual savings account. It, it's a broad entitlement, and everyone puts in, and and everyone's entitled to get out if if they need to from one whole account. Because it's interesting, the response from the opposition, um, National has said, yeah, we're not uh, reflexively opposed to it, we'll have a look at the details, and ACT um, think have said, uh, brilliant, we'll have a tax swap, uh, tax cuts here and a little bit extra into the social insurance scheme, and maybe we should have some individualised accounts as well, so that uh, my high fee, uh, because I'm paid a lot of money, doesn't go to those undeserving you know, people who made the wrong choice with their career or the wrong choice in where they chose to live. Um, I don't want my money going to those losers. How, how do we avoid that, that individualisation um, and the, the sort of shift away from uh, uh, you know, the same amount for, for everyone? 
Yeah, and that's a really good question. And and the, I mean, just because ACT and National have a policy on social insurance doesn't mean it's one of their policies. Just as they have a policy on welfare right now, they have a policy on all kinds of things. And they even have a policy allowing trade unions, but they don't like them. Um, that does, and so that's that's that. We've just got to make sure that we design a system that is a long way from those from those approaches and and the kinds of stingy amounts they've talked about. I know ACT has. We we've re, let's get one in place. That that is not individualised. Let's get one in place that does enable people to to draw down fairly and effectively transfers money from the secure to the insecure. That's what's happening here. Um, uh, many uh, people uh, have had the um, benefit of secure work in all the, throughout their careers, and many people haven't. And that's going to be the actual transfer here. There's been talk about it being from the poor to the rich. I don't accept that at all. People will pay a, a higher premium, I would assume, or levy if they are earning more. They'll put in more. But I think that the people who will benefit most will be the kinds of people who tend to suffer from precarious work more often. And we know that they are the disadvantaged groups. We know that they tend to be Māori, they tend to be Pacific Island, they tend to be women and so on. We think those are the groups that will benefit the most out of this. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, or misinformation around those issues. It, it's, it will benefit um, those people who need it most. Another argument uh, against the social insurance scheme, like the ones that you see in Europe, is that it increases costs for proper full-time jobs and employers seeing these extra costs layered on for full-time employment go, gee, uh, it's very hard for me to get rid of this person, I'll keep them, but the next person that I want to take on, I'm not going to take them on as a full-time employer, I'll take them on as a contractor. That issue comes up in just about all labour reform we do. It's coming up with fair pay agreements, it comes up with um, with employment rights full stop. Um, there's this view that it accelerates a tendency of employers to try to get people out of an employment relationship and into a contracting relationship. Uh, and I think there's some, that's true, we have that problem. I mean, but the, the way to go about that in our view is to f- fix the law and it comes to what where an employment relationship really uh, is and, and where a contracting one is and we're working on that right now. So I think that this, that's the best way to go about that and we shouldn't be frightened to make work better work. We also uh, are not ruling out this covering contractors. You know, we are trying to get as many people in as we can. I'm not, I, I don't know whether we'll get there, but but that's not impossible. So, you know, let's, let's just keep, keep our eye on that. Um, but I don't think we can hold down conditions of appointment because of the threat of people being contracted out. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are even now. Let's instead enhance the rights of contractors, and that's what we are trying to do. Uh, we've had the budget. Um, most of the focus in the budget was on the benefit increases, uh, which the government um, talked about as uh, writing the wrongs of 1991. Could you put this into context for those people who, who who maybe haven't been around for 40 or 50 years watching New Zealand's political scene? How important would a social insurance scheme be in our society, in our government, in our workplace, if it was to be put in place? Well, uh, it seems to to us that this is a very fundamental shift um, and one that we haven't seen for a long time to create a situation where working people, they would face redundancy in a whole completely different uh, frame of mind. It wouldn't be um, the end of the road. It would just be a transition, hopefully, to another job, a better job, uh, to retraining. Um, that could make a, a fundamental difference in the way people approach employment and, an on, and a lifelong career. And... Um, 
uh, we wouldn't uh, be pursuing this if we didn't hear from our brothers and sisters in other countries who have it and and um, can't believe we don't. Um, we think it's a massive opportunity and certainly it is a kind of transformation we're looking for in the New Zealand employment scene. Richard Wagstaff, the president of the CTU. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much to Richard Wagstaff and Kirk Hope, who no doubt will be busy over the next few months doing that devil in the detail. Thanks also to Bank, who helped bring you this podcast with the spin-off. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change. And remember, subscribe so you get the episode on all of your devices. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.